We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. How should we understand the gospel as it applies to nations? Welcome to Grace and Truth. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Jacob Rayom. He is the senior pastor of Trinity Bible Chapel in Waterloo, Ontario. We were uh, students at Southern Seminary many moons ago together, same era. And uh, I'm very thankful to have Jacob on the podcast today to discuss matters of no consequence and no public dispute at all. Uh, Christians, nations, the gospel, the Great Commission. Jacob, welcome to Grace and Truth. Thanks for having me on, Dr. Strand. Well, I really appreciate it. And I've got to say, you have already won in terms of the guest roster on this show for Best Backdrop. This is this is quite a backdrop. We need just a, a quick minute on where you are right now. I'm in my study at the church. This is a serious study. Yeah. Well, it, so what, what happened was there was a season, as you know, when we were locked out of our church during the COVID times. And I brought my study into a, above a horse barn and I found it to be quite quiet and I got a lot done. It was very productive. And there was a kind of a rundown shed on the church campus and so I had this great idea to transform the rundown shed into something that was an upgrade from the horse barn when we got our building back. So that's uh, that's what we did. Well, you have successfully upgraded on the horse barn because that is a truly beautiful study. And uh, I'm going to try to stay focused on the topic at hand and not have study envy as we are discussing. <laughs> So well done. Um, let's uh, let's just dive in for a minute on your background, as you just said, before we get to our conversational debate, which we're going to to call it. I'm stealing that from a strong ministry called Anchored North. You and I will have a conversational debate, which means a friendly discussion, really. Um, and yet we'll we'll also feel free to to work out some matters together on this episode and the next episode of Grace and Truth. Um, but I, I do want my viewership, massive as it is, globe-spanning as it is, to hear about uh, what you went through just a few years ago. There's obviously different versions you can tell about that saga, but just give us a brief sense uh, for viewers who may have heard of you, may know your name, but uh, we'd like more uh, clarity on what you walked through in the last three years up there in Eastern Canada, if you could. Uh, in 2020, like the rest of the world, much of the rest of the world, I guess, we had our uh, lockdowns here to combat the so-called combat a so-called virus. And then we uh, got out of the first one. And during the first lockdown, I tried to lead the church towards unity, towards resistance, um, believing that the church was the, to be governed by the ministers that God has appointed as opposed by the premier of Ontario. Um, that created some turmoil within the church. Eventually, um, some people left, and as sad as that was, it did create unity. So by the time the second lockdown came around in late 2020, our church began to openly resist the government. And we took um, 
at least in Eastern Canada, we took the brunt of the scorn from the media. And then we got uh, some pretty serious repercussions. We were convicted of contempt of court two times. I still have 11 fines hanging over my head. The church still has six fines and uh, each of the elders still has five or six fines. Also, we, as a result of our second contempt conviction, we lost our church building. Uh, the government stole it from us. And um, uh, here we are. So we've regained access to our church building and things are functioning uh, quite well. Um, and notwithstanding the uh, outstanding issues before the courts at the moment. Thank you for catching us up on that. That's painful to hear. I know it's painful far more to experience it. What is the state of things right now uh, for folks who are hearing about this situation and want to pray for you and the church? Well, we've we've uh, appealed all of these convictions and uh, and charges and whatever to the you know the, the courts, and are we lost on both rounds. And so we finally made an appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they said they didn't want to hear us. And so now what we have to do is we have to uh, wait for the matters to be resolved between our lawyer and our, the prosecutor and a judge. And I'm hoping that will be done sometime before Christmas, but we'll see. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm thankful for you. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's painful. Uh, probably at some level to talk about it for the millionth time and, and just be in this, this stew of a situation. But um, probably many folks will not know about you and me engaging on these things. But um, for several years now, I've been really thankful for your stand in Canada uh, for the rights of the church. Um, and I've tried to back you uh, in whatever small way I can, because I'm, I'm saying that not for myself, but just so listeners and, and viewers know, I am grateful for the stand you've taken in Eastern Canada, uh, James Coates in Western Canada. And um, it's it's really been kind of a historic stand and it's a righteous stand. Um, it may not have played the right way so far in the courts on your, on your side of things, but um, you'll be vindicated, I fully believe, on the last day. And so I just, I'm glad to say that publicly to you as I've said it to you. Uh, at different points, but very thankful for you and your courage and your stand. Well, I'm grateful to hear that. That's encouraging. And you were a massive support from uh, your neck of the woods when we were going through all that and some of the exposure you gave us and uh, the text messages and the encouraging emails that I got from you was uh, and a couple phone calls there here and there was uh, greatly appreciated. So thank you for your friendship and um, thank you for the encouragement you were in uh, you know, a somewhat stressful season, I guess you can say. Somewhat stressful is one way to put it. Another way to put it is historically awful in terms of uh, the worst crackdown on Western churches since the Clarendon Code of the 1660s in the UK. So other than that, no big deal. Uh, but uh, we soldier on. We, we press on in Christ. We do. We do. And it's a great honor to do so. Yeah. And the Lord has done something, again, delaying the start of our conversational debate. But the Lord is has done something I, I sense anyway in Canada through the example of churches like yours and others. Um, I do sense a renewed vigor uh, among churches. Um, God's people are always blessed when there is serious courage shown based on sound biblical conviction. And I really, I see that. I see there being a renewed spirit uh, from, from where I sit in the cheap seats in Canadian evangelicalism, and I think it's seeped into the states as well in terms of an effect. I know it's still not fun 
and uh, to say the very least. But I, I do think there's been an effect. Do you think that's true? Have you seen that uh, where well, you are? Well, just to correct you, it has been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is fun. And um, we've had a good time with all of this. But <laughs> These are these are great memories that we've made, and these this is a time that you cannot repeat. And so the fun that we had and the stories that we sit around and laugh about now um, are good stories. But I, I think there's been a renewed vigor within our congregation, and I think this is consistent with what we're seeing with a number of churches across Canada. Um, I just participated in a conference in Western Canada and Alberta that uh, Fairview Baptist Church and Tim Stevens organized, and I was greatly encouraged to hear from dozens uh, and dozens of people from all across the prairies and Western Canada, all the way up to Vancouver Island, who had uh, been greatly impacted and encouraged by our stand and the stand of other uh, faithful brothers uh, who you know. And so I, I do think that there has been some uh, seed that's been sown, there's been some leaven that's been put into the loaf, and it's working its way uh, through the loaf right now. And uh, this is a very positive thing as for the, uh, as it pertains to the health, the long-term health and uh, of the Canadian church. So, I mean, this is the, we're in this for the long game and I don't think things are going to get especially better tomorrow, but uh, we'll see what happens in the years ahead. Mm. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing that and uh, we'll continue to pray for you. We need to talk now about Christian nationalism. Now, Christian nationalism is actually not a term that you take on yourself for your own program, for your leadership as a senior pastor in Canada. Talk to us about how you see the term Christian nationalism. Are there strengths to it? Are there weaknesses to it? Just at the outset here, uh, give us a sense for where you are with regard to that term. Well, I don't like the term. At least I don't like the term uh, being labeled with the term, I should say. Probably it's a better way to say it, simply because I don't know what it, it means when people hear it. So it seems to be a term that's muddled and confused and there's some mystery and fog around it. So until we can get beyond that, I don't really care to go around and wave that flag. Um, I, I do think the idea of having a nation that identifies as Christian is a good thing. Hmm. And I think that all human institutions and relationships, if, if the more that identify as Christian, the better. And when I say identify as Christian, I simply mean it, it express a desire to be faithful to our King, King Jesus. And if the, the nation as a whole collectively desires desired to do that, that would be great. I think in the past, Canadians have done that. At the turn of the last century, 90% of English Canadians went to a church that preached the gospel. So, but times have changed. But certainly back then, things were, the country would have identified as Christian and to the point where we have, uh, you know, psalms written on our parliament buildings and and so on. So it, it embedded right in our laws and our legal codes and our and our rights is this whole Christian atmosphere from which uh, within this country from from which this country sprung up. Okay, so you would see it being a positive thing for institutions, including governments, to identify as Christian, you are not meaning by that, even in terms of what you've already said, that everyone thereby identified with that institution or government or nation, whatever have you, is a born-again believer, but you nonetheless think it's a positive reality to be identified as Christian um, with that proviso. Is that true? Yeah, so long as it's the type of Christian that 
you and I want to want to identify with. I mean, if if they're Jehovah's Witnesses and they're saying it's a you know Christian nation, but it's a Jehovah's Witness nation, we're not too into that kind of stuff. But if it's a historic Protestant evangelical type of worldview, and this is the worldview that is predominating within the culture at the time, and the and the nation itself identifies uh, with that, then I think that's. I don't see how that could be dishonoring to God. I think it would be greatly honoring to God. And it's, I think it's simply living in reality. I mean, is, is Jesus king? Yes, he's king. And if people collectively want to acknowledge that, then wonderful. They should. Uh, tracking with you, um, listening to you. Now, if somebody were to raise the issue of nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, that's what that term means. Um, I'd like to hear your response. I'm broadcasting right now in our global headquarters in Conway, Arkansas, uh, where, as you can imagine, you know, there's been a fair bit of, of Christian influence and thus still a pretty strong residue of what you could call cultural Christianity, right? Um, but one thing that you will hear regularly observed by pastors who care about the gospel, as you've said several times, our kind of pastor um, is that lots of people think they're Christian by virtue of having lived here or being raised in this church or that church. How much does nominal Christianity concern you? And this isn't a trapped question. I genuinely want to hear because that is the kind of problem that can, or at least one problem that can result with a society or a nation or a broader institution being Christian. Uh, would you agree with that? And, and th that nominal Christianity can be a problem in Christian societies or nations and then how much would that concern you well it, it greatly concerns me i i mean i grew up in a country that in the 80s i grew up in this country canada and it was it would have been considered a christian nation then even and i think most people by virtue of the fact that they lived here would have said they are christian in fact i've read debates that took place in parliament at that time which argued from scripture back and forth on the basis of um, a christian underpinning so I, I think that, you know, nominal Christianity, yeah, I don't want people walking around thinking they're Christian, but actually being unconverted. But I, but this is, this is what happens when people come under the preaching of the gospel. There's always going to be false conversions, and there's always going to be people who are deceived into believing they're Christians when they're not. And this is the task of the minister uh, when he encounters someone who's not a Christian, and they think they're a Christian, to convince them that he's not, they're not a Christian. And I've had to do this throughout the course of my ministry, just because... Canada has secularized in a quicker at a quicker rate than, for example, Arkansas has, where you live. Doesn't mean we don't have nominal Christianity around here. Most of the people in the little village I live in go to church, but I wouldn't say they're all they're all regenerate. Um, and, in fact, I, I question whether they all are. I don't think they all are, and uh, quite a few probably aren't. And I and I would hesitate to to say that every single person who's a member of my congregation is regenerate. I sure I've interviewed them, or elders have interviewed them. They have a testimony. They've been baptized by immersion. They demonstrate the fruit of the spirit. But are there false conversions within our church? There most definitely are at a church this size. When you have three, four hundred members and eleven hundred people coming to church, I mean, there's a lot of people there that are sitting under uh, preaching, and I wouldn't be surprised if a good number of them are unconverted and culturally Christian. So, yes, is this a is this a problem? Sure, it is. But it doesn't mean that we don't want. Uh, the gospel to advance and permeate the culture in such a way that it begins to uh, permeate even the public life of the nation. Right. So your argument is that the gospel does permeate the public life of the nation if 
the nation is ordered to, in an explicit way, Christ, let's say, not just generically theist, but you would actually go so far as to say that is Christian influence, that is gospel influence for a nation to think of itself as Christian. Well, to declare that, that Jesus Christ is the, is the ruler of kings is just simply living in reality. And so anyone that, who has been born again uh, would long to hear other people acknowledge uh, very facts of reality. I mean, I want to live in a nation that believes in the law of gravity because um, this is the reality in which we live. I want to live in a nation that believes that biological males are actually males. This is, this is the reality in which we live. And just as real that biological males are actually males and gravity is gravity, Jesus Christ is the ruler of kings. And so I, I think that it would be a great thing to live in reality. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's what I'm advocating for. And I, I certainly believe in that. And sure. I don't think a Christian, I don't think you can ever have, you have a group of people together the size of a nation, never mind the size of a church. You can't be assured that everyone is born again. But um, when the, you start to have a public life that plays out or a cultural life that plays out and eventually penetrates into the political realm. Um, these Christian principles will take root if this is the predominant culture of any group of people, whether it's a family, a university, seminary, church, uh, city, um, or, or nation. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think it's very good thing. This is what I'm agreeing with that, you know, the gospel penetrate and permeate a culture. So we're in complete agreement there. And uh, I know you to have that heart and that concern. And uh, so, so all good to that. I think there are questions that some of us would have about whether it really is a positive thing uh, for governors, governments, prime ministers, presidents, and so on to think of themselves as Christian by virtue of being in that place. I've articulated that briefly. But you and I might also understand slightly differently uh, Christ's words in Matthew twenty two twenty one, 21, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And you've raised that with me. One of the reasons we're having this conversational debate, a fun and friendly conversation about contested matters and not slagging each other off on Twitter right now or some stupid thing like that, um, is because um, you, you wrote me, I think you wrote me, and, um, you know, wanted to talk through in, a, in your characteristically good-natured way, and yet also convictional way, which I fully respect, um, this idea that Jesus there in Matthew 22, 21 is leaving, we could, we could use different language to describe the view, but is at least acknowledging the reality that Caesar in this age may not worship God, may not uh, be under the express lordship of Christ. I'll leave off here. You, you express your challenge there that that you have toward at least what some Baptists and others who are not Christian nationalists would say. So do you want me to discuss the, the challenge that I brought to you? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, or, yeah. Discuss it. Okay, okay so I, I originally wrote you in response to a podcast that you did a couple of weeks ago to say that to, I actually was looking for clarity. So I wanted to make sure I heard you right, but I left the podcast with the impression that Caesar has some type of a neutral realm where the, you know, we, we can't expect him or can't demand that he, he bend or bow to the rule of Christ. 
And, and so that's the way I, I took the comment. That's the way it came across to me. And there was, there might've been a couple of things. It's a while since I listened to the podcast, but there might've been a couple other things in the podcast that kind of struck me that way. So I, I think I, I sent you an email to clarify what, what you mean by that. Yeah. And then we went back and forth a few times and, and here we are having this conversation, but I, and I, and I think the reason I asked you to clarify is because historically I've read you, I've, I've talked with you and I've, I've always thought that you believed that the, the, at the very least, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of, of God is a transcendent standard of justice and a, a transcendent standard of goodness and righteousness. And so I, I couldn't see you thinking that Caesar all of a sudden has his own realm where he operates um, by his own will and volition without any accountability to God. And so that's what I sent an email to, to see if, whether I was understanding right or wrong uh, in, in what I heard. Yeah, well said. Um, and I, I'll just dive in and we can we can go back and forth a little bit. Uh, I, I would say not that Caesar operates in a kind of protection zone where Caesar, you know, can do whatever Caesar wants. Uh, and then God has his sphere where God does whatever he wants. Um, that's one of the reasons why I myself have never been a huge fan of at least one form of what is called two kingdoms theology, uh, which you're well versed on, of course. And and for those who are listening or um, watching and are not familiar with that term, two kingdoms theology essentially breaks down the world into two kingdoms, uh, the secular kingdom and Christ's kingdom. And 2K advocates, as they are often called, would say that the kingdom we are to concern ourselves with is the kingdom of Christ. That's that's the one we're in. And the outside kingdom, it does its thing. It's very fallen. It's going to be fallen. There's nothing we can do to change that. And so we just focus on the kingdom of Christ. And so I would actually push back myself against a poor reading, I would argue, of Matthew 22, 21 and related texts where uh, we don't concern ourselves with Caesar and Caesar has impunity to do whatever Caesar wants to do. And of course, Caesar will be held to account in the 2K understanding of things. But in the intervening time in this age, we're, we're not even really that concerned uh, because we can't we can't make it change. And uh, and so we're just left to focus on the, the work of the local church or whatever uh, sphere we may be in there. But, but I would say, while there's not a kind of sealed off partition between the church, the things of, of God and the things of Caesar's, Jesus does in that teaching lay down that there is um, a nation, there there is a ruler, uh, and the people of God are subject to that ruler, even though that ruler is not necessarily Christian, is not necessarily following God. Now, I'm not reading Jesus as giving a blank check to Caesar and, and telling his disciples, write whatever Caesar tells you to write. That's not accurate, I don't think, in terms of exegesis. But I do think uh, taxation, basic uh, duties as a citizen, uh, being subject to Caesar in normal terms, normal terms, I think that's probably at least some of what Christ envisions there in terms of his people living in this fallen world. I haven't even yet gotten to whether we evangelize Caesar or not, but do you think what I have just laid out is sound 
in terms of interpretation or would you push back against it? Well, I definitely think that we're, we're called to honor Caesar or the emperor or the, the head of state or um, our elected representatives or our judges in a way that is that, that you can demonstrate even if they're not Christians. So I, I do think that that is something that we're supposed to do. If you're, if you're asking me that, um, and I think that's one of the things that you're trying to lay out because there is a concern that there's almost this raucousness and incendiary attitude towards governing officials that, that really is unbecoming of Christians. Um, however, I, I do think that in Jesus saying, render unto God the things that are God's and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, there's, there's more going on than just saying there's this radical division between two realms. And, and so what, what in this universe, like just to, like to frame what I'm saying rhetorically, what in this universe does not belong to Christ? Um, you know, the, the, the um, earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a claim that's in the old Testament as well as in, the new Testament. And so that means that even Caesar belongs to Jesus Christ and he would be right to acknowledge that. And his throne does and his empire does. So I think in Jesus, in Jesus making that statement, because they're asking, they're trying to trap him, right? Like, should we pay tax? Should we not pay tax? And Israel's under occupation. So who are you loyal to Jesus? Are you, are you loyal to Israel? Are you loyal to Caesar? And in Jesus making that statement, he he is he is in one sense neutering Caesar because he's declaring that there is an authority above him. You, you, you're living in a you're living in a totalitarian state under a, under a, a governor or an emperor who 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 claims and is perceived to have godlike qualities, universal jurisdiction, and with his thumb up or thumb down, he can have you executed. Um, and he can take nations just because he wants to. He's Caesar, after all. And he has, and in their pockets, they have little coins on them that have rank idolatry on them, proclaiming the lordship and universal reign of Caesar and seated in the heavenlies. And so I think in Jesus saying that, he's he's putting back, just as much as he's showing the, the Pharisees that they really need to knock it off and he's silencing them, silencing the religious leaders, He's he's also he's also declaring his own sovereignty over Caesar. He has a role, but his role is defined by God and yeah. he must submit to God in, as he, as he executes God's definition of his role. And I think in Jesus proclaiming that that's one of the things that's coming out of that statement. Yeah. I like that. I like what you, and I, I don't know that I find a lot to disagree with in that. I certainly agree that Jesus is reframing the whole deck, right? Um, he's shuff- reshuffling it, and God is on top, and Caesar is not. And that's a massive thing for Jesus to say, as you've been pushing at. I guess the only thread there that I would pull a little bit and wonder about is whether um, whether Jesus is here indicating that Caesar can only rule uh, if Caesar bows the knee to God, so to speak. Um, I, I think in ideal terms, we do want 
Caesar, whoever the Caesar is, okay, not just the emperor of Rome, right, in the first century, but extending that broader. We want our national leaders at all different levels to come to Christian faith. So I'm, I'm wanting that right now. First uh, Timothy 2, 1 to 5 summons us to pray, for example, for rulers and those in authority and power um, that we may lead quiet lives. So I, I want that too. I want rulers to come to faith. I think it's right for Christians um, to seek evangelistic opportunities to challenge their rulers to come to Christian faith by the grace of God. But I don't think that Caesar only has the authority to rule insofar as Caesar is Christian or is following Christ explicitly or something like that. Um, you, yeah. you and I, I think you and I think agree on that. I mean, I'm living under uh, uh, um, a very corrupt government right now. And I think you are too. And much of the Western world is at yeah. this particular, I think all most, much of the world is at this particular point in time. And a, and a government that really, in many senses, is apostate and is not Christian at all and is an, is an antichrist and manifesting characteristics of antichrist at the moment. Hmm. But yet I would rather live under this government and and function as, a, as best as I can as an honorable citizen than live under no government and have anarchy. So this is a, one of the things that I've tried to teach our church recently is because, you know, there's there's a temptation towards resentment. And I think bitterness in all our hearts, considering some of the things we've had to go through, yeah. is that in our prayers, as we, as we do pray, imprecatory prayers against our rulers at times, we should also be thanking God um, for the for the rulers, even though they be corrupt and even though they be imperfect, we are better off with them than without them. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I do think we want... We want Christ's authority acknowledged in all the earth. Um, I sometimes see the framing Christ or chaos, uh, for example, in these conversations. And I like the framing in terms of the individual human heart. It's certainly true there. And it is true broader. I guess the question is just this. Is it, is it uh, the case that a Christian can still function in a society that is not explicitly Christian. I mean, you think of Peter's letters, Peter's epistles, first and second Peter, first Peter in particular, and you recognize that if it's Nero who is ruling at the time that Peter is writing, as many scholars think, Nero is a Jupiter worshiper, and it is too narrow that Peter is telling the church to submit. Now, you and I agree, for the for the record, and this matters, this is consequential, that you don't do anything Nero says. Neither do you leave Nero alone and pet him on the head and think, well, this is great. I mean, hey, Jesus will make everything right at the end of all time, but we don't have anything to do. No, there's not that radical divide of, you know, the church's activity and the world's activity. But at the same time, um, as, as you were just talking about, we do pray for Trudeau. We do pray for Biden and we are under them. We are substantially under them. And, and um, even if we even if we are seeking opportunities to evangelize them and witness to them, I still think that um, this isn't so much your case, but the Christian nationalist claim that we can basically, at least by some, not by all, we can only serve under Christian rulers. or we, we, We're not even able to be in a state because it's chaos if it's not Christ. I'm just, I'm trying to read Matthew 22 
and First Peter and say, I, I don't think there's a neutral space in the cosmos where God doesn't care if he's worshipped or not. But I do think there's a space where the state is instituted by God and we're subject to it in normal terms, whether or not it is Christian or not. And we're actually to press further here. Sorry, I'm putting a lot on the table. But we actually don't see the apostles either in the book of Acts trying to Christianize their nation. Um, we do see them preaching the gospel, including to rulers and figures in power. But we don't see them Christianizing their nation in the way that I think a fair number of folks today want to do. Do you think that's accurate or not? Um, I'm just trying to process everything that was said, with it, whether it's all <laughs> accurate. <laughs> and and the, the most recent thing that you said uh, that whether I think is accurate or not is, do we see the apostles trying to make their nations Christian? And um, well, I know the apostle Paul did say that he would he would rather die and essentially perish himself for the sake of his whole nation becoming Christian. Um, and certainly there would be political implications for that in Israel. Like he, he loved his kindred in the flesh. And so that was, that was near and dear to his heart. So I, I think, I don't think they, I, I don't see any strong movements towards political advocacy in the, you know, in the book of Acts, but I do see the longing to talk to the emperor and the proclamation of God's sovereignty and rulership over, over political leaders. And um, I do see Paul's heart for his own nation to convert most definitely. Good. Well, uh, I agree with you uh, on those last statements. Um, this is an interesting discussion because th this is why these discussions need to happen because as you have them, you find that there's a fair bit. You hear the other guy talking and you think that's sound. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I appreciate you doing this. We're going to leave off for this episode and move into our second episode. Thank you, everybody, for watching uh, this first part of this global, truly global conversational debate with me and Jacob Rayon, my, my dear friend, uh, faithful pastor in Canada. And uh, I do ask you at the end of this uh, podcast to like and subscribe to it on all the platforms, download episodes with impunity. We will be back with part two tomorrow. So uh, thank you very much for following Grace and Truth. And uh, may that banner, Grace and Truth, be the pursuit of your life. Mm -hmm.